You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We are going to actually be starting a new book this morning. So we're going to be in the book of Haggai. It's in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets closer towards the end of the Old Testament. So if you want to start trying to find it, if you have a Bible, you'll skip over it very easy because it's not a real, real long book. Uh, But we're going to be in Haggai chapter one this morning. We just uh, came off finishing the book of Nahum. Uh, which is another one of the Old Testament minor prophets. There's a total of 12 of them. Um, Haggai is going to be a little bit different uh, than Nahum. Nahum, we focused a lot more on the wrath of God that was coming to his people for the disobedience. Um, And Haggai is a a little bit different than that. So if you are a note taker, I have three points this morning. First, we're going to see our priorities. Secondly, we're going to see this call to obedience to Christ. And then lastly, we see when our priorities and our obedience is in effect, we see God's faithfulness in our life. So if you're a note taker, those are the three things we're going to cover this morning. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll jump on into the text. God, we thank you for who you are. You are a good and gracious Father. Lord, I pray that as we open up this text that was written 2,000 plus years ago, that's still applicable to our life today. I pray that you convict us where we need convicted. Show us where we need to be obedient to you. Remind us of your faithfulness, God, so that we can love you um, and give you the worth and glory that you deserve. It's your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's go ahead and jump on in. So Haggai chapter 1, we're going to cover the whole chapter this morning, so hang with me, all right? We're going to read the first verse to start with. It says, In the year, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, On the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And so to give you kind of an idea of the setting that we're at, this book was written around 520 B.C., So we have Haggai, as we talked about, as one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And how the prophets are broken up, the first nine that you have deals with uh, prophecy to Judah before they are exiled out to Babylon. These last three is dealing with uh, Judah after the exile, so after they've allowed to come back into the city. And so we see in, in the first nine, it deals more with the wrath of God. Uh, for the disobedience of his people. And then the last three is after this has already taken place. And so we see Haggai come onto this scene to be a messenger of God to his people. And he's going to declare to these people, hey, God has given you a job to rebuild this temple and you haven't done it for about 14 to 16 years now. What's going on? And so a quick history lesson real quick before we dive further into the text. So hang with me. Right now it's 520 B.C., We're going to go back 1,500 years, right? So 1,500 years ago, around 2,000 B.C., you have God showing up on the scene, and he he gets this guy out of a pagan land named Abram. And You guys know the story of Abram. God says, hey, I'm going to, through you, I'm going to make your descendants, as many as the stars in the sky, as many as sands on the beach. Um, through Through you, your offspring, talking about Jesus, is going to come the Savior, right? So God changes Abram's name to Abraham. We see Abraham uh, getting older in age. He has a son named Isaac, right? You guys know that story. Uh, Abraham, or God tells Abraham, go up on the mountain for a sacrifice, and he thinks he's going to sacrifice his son, 
We see God's faithfulness in, in play where he brings a different sacrifice in place of Isaac. You see, Isaac have, has a son named Jacob. Uh, Jacob then goes on to have 12 sons. These become the, the 12 tribes of Israel, right? We see Jacob's name change from Jacob to Israel, and we see this nation kind of starting to form. Hundreds years after this, so about 1500 B.C., we see this nation who is, who is populated more and more. They're currently in captivity in Egypt. Right? You guys know the story from Sunday school, the ten plagues that come. So Egypt, Pharaoh has the children of Israel captive. And God comes to this guy named Moses and says, Moses, you need to go tell Pharaoh you have to let my people go. Right? Well, if you know the story, Moses has a little bit of a stuttering problem, if you will. And so he has Aaron help him out, deliver this message. And so they go to Pharaoh and say, hey, God says, let his people go. Well, Pharaoh says, no, thank you. And God starts sending plague upon plague on Egypt. The last plague being, if you didn't have the blood over the doorpost, the death angel passed through and kills the firstborn of everyone in the city there. So finally, after that happens, Pharaoh says, fine, get out. I don't want any of this stuff to happen to me anymore. Go, you're free, right? So you see Moses and Aaron lead the people out. Shortly after they leave, Pharaoh's like, you know what? Change my mind. We want all those slaves back. So Pharaoh starts chasing after them, right? You see they come to the Red Sea. God then parts the Red Sea for them, and the children of Israel get to cross safely. The Red Sea then consumes and kills um, all the Egyptians there. And we see God's deliverance through these stories, his faithfulness taking care of his people. After this happens, you see them come to the wilderness, and God says, hey, I'm going to take you to the promised land. Right, the land that I have created for my people. So they send 12 spies in. Right? Ten of the spies come back and say, hey, we can't, we can't go into that land. There's giants in the land. Now given they just saw God kill the firstborn of however many people in Egypt, they just saw God split the sea, but now they're fearful that somehow these giants, God's not powerful enough to take care of them. So because of their disobedience, we see uh, God keep them in the wilderness for 40 years wandering around lost to kill off the generation that was disobedient to him. After that, they make it into the promised land. And it's not long into the promised land that they realize, you know what? God's not enough. We need an earthly king. If we're going to be a nation, we have to be like all these other nations, right? So God gives them what they want, and he appoints this guy named King Saul. And we, we find out King Saul is not a good guy, right? He's an evil king. Um, shortly after that, this guy named King David comes on the scene, and God says that David is a man after his own heart, although David did some bad things as well. Uh, and then after David, we see this guy named King Solomon, right? King Solomon comes onto the scene, and King Solomon builds a temple. He builds a temple for God to dwell in, for altars and sacrifices to happen in. Um, this is around, King Solomon's around 480 years after the Exodus. And it's not long after that this temple is built that Israel is now split. So they split into two parts. They split into a northern kingdom and they split into a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom very quickly fell away from God. They started practicing different religions. They started living life for themselves, didn't have anything to do with God, whereas the southern kingdom seemed to be faithful to God for a while. Uh, the southern kingdom is what we actually refer to as Judah here in the text. And this kingdom is the one that followed the Davidic dynasty, right? The line in which Jesus is going to come from, the tribe of Judah through David. About 720 B.C., 
to uh, 620 BC, you have all these prophecies, the first nine written, talking about how the Assyrians has overtaken the northern kingdom, and if the southern kingdom doesn't repent and obey Christ, that they're soon going to be exiled and taken over by the Babylonians. So this goes on to happen. The Babylonians takes over the people. Around 586 BC, the Babylonians destroys this temple. They, they take it out. So then we see about 50 years later, roughly, through God's sovereignty, you have the Persians in the land, and God allows through this guy named King Cyrus to allow his people back into the promised land. So the people of Israel return around 538 B.C., and other parts of Scripture talks about how they return, they're joyful, they're, they're blowing trumpets, and they start rebuilding this temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. They start building for about two years, and then construction stops. And scripture doesn't explicitly say why it stops. Uh, most scholars believe maybe a new king kind of took over and the old king that originally allowed them in uh, is not there anymore. And so they're kind of fearful for their life, right? This new king, if we continue to build a, a temple for our God that he doesn't agree with, what's going to happen, right? And so construction stops. And now 14 years has gone by since they've built anything on this temple. And that's where we pick up the story. So, I know that was a lot, but I think it's important because we're going to see a couple of things. So, the purpose of this history lesson is to paint a picture of where we're at now and for us to see into the story that for 1,500 years from 2000 to 520 BC, we see this constant theme in the life of God's people. We see God deliver them, God's faithful, they repent, they obey for a little bit, and then they fall back into their sin. And it's this story on repeat. And if we look in our own life, I, I, I'm fearful that we see that same story, at least I do in my own life. And so we see that for 1,500 years, this constant theme of God's faithfulness and his deliverance. And hopefully we don't, we don't have prophets today coming in, speaking any extra revelation that God has given them. But God has preserved and given us text, and we say, how does this apply for us? Well, we learn from the past, and we learn from the past of our church, our history, right? The obedience to Christ. Seen to declare to the people it's time to start building the temple again. So verse 2 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much but you harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And so we see this text, uh, we see this uh, message given to Haggai from the Lord of hosts with almost a sarcastic tone. As he says, you guys are building up your own houses while mine lays in ruins. I know whenever I come home from work, um, whether or not my kids did something they shouldn't have done, uh, I'll come home and, and usually the first thing that I hear is my wife will come up to me and it'll start out saying, hey, you've got to see or I have to tell you what your son did. Right? It's not her son. It's my son because they did something wrong. Right? And it's this idea that if it, was, if it was her son, if they did something good, it was, hey, let me show you what our kid did. Like, let me show you what he drew today, right? 
And we see this with, with Jesus. This is the first time in, in the text that we don't see him refer it to as my people. All throughout this, we see God refer to him as my people, my people. But here it says, these people say the time has not yet come. As if God is disassociating himself from the people in the text saying, if they were my people, they would have built the, they would have built the temp- temple 14 years ago. They would have obeyed my commands. Do you guys not remember the covenant I made with your father Abraham 1,500 years ago? Do you not remember in Deuteronomy the curses for disobedience? And we're going to see these curses played out in the text. And so we see here these people, they say the time has not yet come. We talked about how people differ on why they stopped the construction. They were excited to go back into the land. They built, they laid the foundation, they built the altar, and then construction t- stopped within two years. And we talked about how uh, one, one commentator that I, I read on this was saying that he personally thinks it was a new king. And, and the text seems to illustrate that by how they describe the Lord. So in verse 2, and then I think in verse 5 as well, it says, thus says the Lord of hosts. But when you take this language and you interpret it, what this really means is, thus says the king of kings. As if you're worried that maybe this king isn't going to allow it, do you realize who your true king really is? Do you realize who your true king that you serve should be? Not this earthly king that you should be afraid of, but the king of kings, the one that delivered you, the one that parted the Red Sea, the one who's been faithful to you for 1,500 years now. But they say the time has not yet come. And how often do we use the same excuse in our life? Right? We say, now's not a good time for me to go to church. Now's not a good time for me to get involved and served. Now's not a good time for me to witness to those around me. Right? We, we have this idea that we've allowed busyness and lack of time to be the most acceptable and used excuse in the church. Right? I don't have time to be faithful to Christ right now because I have this. I don't have time to be obedient to Christ and serve Him because of fill in the blank. And church, let me be clear that God is not okay with any excuse to replace and answer a lack of service to him. There is no lack of time. There is no lack of money. There is no lack of anything to serve Christ. Now, there might not be enough time, effort, and money to serve Christ in the lifestyle you want. And so what's the solution? The solution is you change your lifestyle. You change your priorities You quit focusing on yourself and you focus on Christ. You let the things that you want in life become a secondary desire after God's will is accomplished. We see the sarcasm in the text where God is saying, oh my bad, I forgot. It's time for you guys to build your house right now while mine lays in ruins. You guys have time to make your house comfortable, right? It says paneled houses. This is to illustrate that there's like engraved uh, woodworking within the houses. They have time to make their houses live in luxury while the house where God dwells is in ruins. How often in our life do we prioritize our wants, our desires, over God's call for us to serve Him? And it's easy to do. We, got, we get caught up with our day-to-day, our week-to-week, always wanting that next thing, that next job, that new promotion, that new house, that new car. Right? Whatever it is in life, we've put things in priority over Christ. I love the way Francis Chan puts it. He explains it this way. He says, too often in the American church, when people walk an aisle and they pray a prayer, they feel bad for what they've done, 
They simply walk an aisle and pray a prayer and they ask life or they ask Christ in their life to make him their slave, but not their master. Too often people pray a prayer and say, God, will you come and save me from hell? Will you come and heal my sickness? Will you come and fix my problems? God does not want to be your slave. God wants to be the master of your life. If you surrender to Christ, you're making him master, not slave. You're not asking him to hop in the passenger seat of your car and let him go wherever you go in life. You're handing them keys and saying, God, wherever it is that you go, I'm following. Whatever you want in my life, I'm going to do. The people of God here has gotten comfortable very quickly not being in exile and they're enjoying whatever life it is that they somehow can create for themselves. You see this assumed promise in the text of what true fulfillment in life could be, right? Jesus is saying, you eat, but you're not full. You harvest, but you don't get anything. You collect your wage and you're putting them in a pocket with holes in it. If you want to know what true fulfillment in life is, quit trying to live for yourself and start living for me. Give it to God. So we see that trying to create a life apart from Christ, apart from service and obedience to Him, ends with nothing. Since you have sown much, you harvested little, you eat, but you never have enough. Christ is saying, do you not realize that you in your own life trying to do anything apart from me results in disappointment? And so we look into our own life. What illusions are we showing ourselves trying to gather up and store up things for ourselves rather than service for God? We see here in this time, Haggai's people, that their priorities are on themselves, are on their own house, on making their own name great, on getting comfortable, and they're not on obedience to Christ. When our priorities in life do not align with God's will, it results in emptiness. Whatever it is in life that we prioritize, to that we become obedient. And that is what we spend our time doing. And so for these people, their priority was with comfort, building up their own houses for themselves. So this church, the same is true for us in our life. Whether it's work, sports, family, kids, spouse, money, fame, whatever it is, you cannot prioritize the things in your life above God and remain obedient to Him. It's impossible. We see that through 1,500 years of history, as we went through that history, hopefully you catch the theme that we serve a God who is a jealous God. And He will stop at nothing to be with His people, to have the love of His people, the covenant that He made with Abraham. He's willing to do whatever it takes for His people. Look at all that He did. He allowed the Assyrians to conquer his own people. He allowed the Babylonians to conquer his own people. He parted the Red Sea. He killed thousands upon thousands of people for his people. And before we get this idea of thinking, wow, that sounds like a very harsh God, that he's going to allow his people to be overcome by pagan enemies so that he can draw them back to him. Before we get this idea of thinking how harsh of a God it is that we're looking at, you should be extremely thankful that nothing will stop God from being with his people. Right? Fast forward to the New Testament, 500 years later, what's he do? God will stop at nothing. He sends his own son to die, to bridge the gap, to be with his people. And so praise be to God that we serve a jealous and loving father that does whatever it takes to draw his people to him. And so we ask ourselves, what in our life have we put in front of Christ? And then we see in this text 
to lay it down and follow him. So verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, if you will, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. Behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord? Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld its dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I have called for a drought on the land, on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So God tells him in the text, if you want to be obedient to me, go. Go up to the mountain, start chopping down trees, and build my temple. Do you want to know the reason you have little? I took it from you. I am pouring out curses on you for your lack of obedience, God is saying. God is tired of being second in the lives of his people, and God demands obedience. And we see that this obedience leads to two things. The first is we see that obedience to God results in action. So God demands action. We don't see here this idea that when God calls sinners to repentance, when God calls his people to repentance, they're not simply feeling bad for what they did and then two hours later going on living their life however they want, right? True repentance and true obedience leads to action. It's not simply feeling bad for what you've done. I ask myself as I'm, as I'm looking at this text, how many times have I sat here and heard and been convicted, felt bad for something and took no action? As if it was enough that God's like, oh, you feel bad for it. Well, that's okay. You can feel bad again here in a couple weeks. No, true repentance leads to action. Godly sorrow and repentance leads to godly action and service. And the second thing we see here is that when we have true repentance that leads to true obedience, that leads to the glorification of God. God says, go onto the mountain, chop wood, build my temple. Why? So that I can be glorified. God is not here so that we can make our own name great, but so that we can bring him the glory for everything that he's worth. And so ask yourself the question, if you want to know if your actions are right, if they're in line with God's will, are the things that you are doing in life bringing glory to God or bringing glory simply to yourself? Now let me be clear, it's not bad to have goals in life, it's not bad to have aspirations, it's not bad to take a vacation, it's not bad to have money. You can be successful in life and bring glory to God. You can go on vacation and bring glory to God. You can have money and bring glory to God. Don't confuse what I'm saying by thinking you have to sell everything, quit your job, and become a missionary 24-7. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is praise God for everything he's blessed you with and use everything he's blessed you with for his glory and his glory alone. We see here in the text, Haggai reminds them, and us today, of what happens when we fail to obey God, right? We read that through 9 and 11. It says, hey, you want to know why you've been working hard and have nothing? I took it away from you. You want to know why you clothe yourself but you're not warm? I did that. Why? Because you prioritize yourself over me and I'm not okay with that. We see that this is the curse of God coming to his people for the lack of obedience. God is reminding of them of what happens when they fail to obey. Now these people knew the history of 
Abraham, of Jacob, of Isaac. We see it in later chapters in Haggai. That's why I wanted to reference that. So they know the covenant that they made. They know what is said, if you will, in Deuteronomy 28, talking about the curses of those who are disobedient. So I'm going to read Deuteronomy 28, some verses, in case you think this idea of the curses of God being harsh. Let's look and see what God says. Deuteronomy 28 says, But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and all his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed uh, cursed shall your basket and kneading bowl be. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease and with fever, with inflammation and fiery heat, with drought, with blight, with mildew. They shall pursue uh, pursue you until you perish. And the heavens over your head shall be bronze. The earth under you shall be as iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall be a whore to all the kingdoms of the earth. And it goes on to continue talking more and more about the curses if we don't obey God. And so hopefully this is a reminder for us today that we serve this same God. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so we ask ourselves, has we failed to put God as our priority in our life? Have we allowed our sin to overtake us? Have we allowed, have we failed to follow Christ with our life? There might be things in your life that seem like it's not going your way. It's God trying to get your attention and bring you back to him. And we see in this text this idea of how true repentance happens. So you have the word of the Lord, scripture today. Haggai in this time, to rebuke and correct the people for their sin, for their lack of obedience, for their lack of right priorities. And godly conviction leads to godly repentance. Godly repentance leads to more than sorrow. It leads to action. And when we truly repent and we truly obey, we see God's faithfulness in our life. Continuing on, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. In the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent them, and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the messenger of the Lord spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, in the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, in the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so we see this verse references back to the people being God's people again after repentance. We see that after repentance, God says, I am with you. 
And so you cannot have the presence of God in your life and continue to live a life that pleases yourself. You cannot have the presence of God in your life and continue living in your sin without change. We see in these last few verses, it says that the people feared the Lord. They heard this call of repentance and obedience, and they feared the Lord and obeyed. Praise be to God when we obey the commands of the Lord. And as we look throughout Scripture, God has commanded us to do a lot. When we look at the commands of Christ, we see that we are to take up our cross and follow Him. We are called to deny ourselves. We're called to die to ourselves daily. We're called to be witnesses in our cities. We're called to live a life that is holy and acceptable to Christ. We are called to do a lot. And if at first glance it becomes overwhelming, right? Some of us have super busy lives right now, worrying about working 60 hours, worrying about our kids, our wife, our spouse, our family, worrying about how we're going to pay that next bill, worrying about the loved ones that we have, fighting different sicknesses, unaware of how the world's going to turn out. But look at verse 13. It says, I am with you, declares the Lord. The same God who breathed out planets, the same God who delivered his people from Egypt, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who allowed the Assyrians to overtake him, who allowed the Babylonians to overtake him, this same God who sent his son to die for us in our place says, I am with you. And while this text is written for the people of Israel in 520 B.C., this call to repentance and to rebuild the temple, we see the exact same language used in Matthew when Christ gives us our calling. Turn into Matthew, it says, you guys know the verse, and Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so how do we go on being obedient in such a busy, worry-filled life? We come to the belief that when we put our faith and our obedience in Christ, that Christ is always with us. We can become obedient because of what Christ has done for us. We become obedient for what, who God is. When we make God our master rather than our slave, then we will eat and be full. We will drink and have enough. We will harvest and have enough. Our goal in life is not to make life easier, but rather bring God glory through our obedience. And as we finish out this, this first chapter, I want to paint a picture of the bigger picture of what's really happening here, in case you might have missed it. You see, you might be thinking, if there's a new king in town, who's potentially going to kill God's people, what's wrong with waiting a little bit, right? Is God being a little bit harsh by pouring out these curses on them for disobedience? It's not that they're disobedient. They're just wanting to wait a little bit longer. In case you might miss the bigger picture, what's really happening is it's not just a building that God was wanting to be built. It's not that God wanted a temple so he could say, look how great I am, right? The temple represented the dwelling place of God. What God's wanting is not a structure. He's wanting to dwell with his people. He's wanting to be in the presence of his people, the people that he made a covenant with back in 2000 BC with Abraham. Look at the entire history of life. And this has been the theme. This is the whole theme of the Bible, right? God makes Adam and Eve. And what's he do? He walks with them in the cool of the day. He wants to dwell with his people. 
They built a tabernacle in the Old Testament. Why? So God can dwell with His people wherever they went. They would carry this tabernacle around. Solomon builds a temple. Why? Because he wants to dwell with his people. And God's saying, you have to be obedient to me and rebuild this temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Why? Because I want to be with you guys. I want to be in the presence with you guys. You're my people and I'm your God. You fast forward to the New Testament, what's God do? God wants to be with us so much that he comes to earth as a man and allows creation to kill him, to bridge that gap to his people. Even when Jesus uh, leaves and ascends to heaven, Jesus says, it is a good thing that I'm leaving. Why? Because I'm going to send the comforter to be with you. All throughout history, God has a desire to be with his people, and that's what's happening here. Their lack of obedience is not simply for a structure to be built. God wants to dwell with his people. And God wants to dwell with his people so much that he's going to stop at nothing to do that. If that means bringing curses on his people to bring them back to him, so be it. If that means allowing the Assyrians to overtake him, so be it. The Babylonians, so be it. He wants to be with us so much that he pours out curses and wrath on his own son to bridge the gap to be with us. And so maybe you're here and you've never had the presence of God in your life. Maybe you've never repented and, and followed Christ and obeyed his, his law, his commandments. Maybe you're living a life trying to bring glory to yourself rather than repenting and obeying Christ. My hope is that you see this morning the love that God has for his people and what he's willing to do to dwell with his people. And this same God desires to dwell with you. And so he's saying, quit building up your own houses. Quit trying to fix yourself. Quit trying to make your own wages. Quit trying to earn somehow favor with Christ. Let it go. Just repent. Go start chopping wood and, and build a temple. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Just obey me and I'll handle the rest, God's saying. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.